Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our risen and living Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, the first thing that we ask for is that God's name would be kept holy. Luther reminds us in his small catechism that God does not need our help to make his name holy. His name is holy whether we keep it holy or not. The problem isn't whether God's name is holy, but whether we treat it as holy in our life. And so what we're really asking when we pray, hallowed be thy name, is that God would teach us to honor his name and not to constantly throw mud at it with our words and with our actions. In other words, we are praying that God would teach us to stop misusing his name and learn how to use it correctly. Our sermon text, the parable that is before us this morning, Luke 20, verses 9 to 20, is an excellent example of those who do not honor and hallow God's name, but disregard it and spit upon the name of Jesus. And so it's an excellent text to remind us what God desires when he commands us to honor his name and what we mean, or what we ought to mean, when we pray, hallowed be thy name. We'll take the parable in pieces. We begin with Luke 20, verses 9 and 10. Then he began to tell the people, of this, to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The owner of the vineyard has a very reasonable expectation. He expects that those he hired to take care of the vineyard would take care of the vineyard and at the proper time offer up its fruits, as is proper to him, the owner. The vine dressers, for whatever reason we're not told, decide not to do this. Decide instead to keep not only the fruit of the vineyard, but the vineyard itself for themselves. Eventually, these vine dressers are removed, and Jesus says the vineyard will be given to those who will bear its fruit, hand over its fruit to God in the proper time. Jesus is at least partially, if not primarily, speaking this parable to the Jewish leaders to remind them and to remind us what will happen to those who ought to be serving God faithfully in positions of leadership, ought to be serving God's people. The vineyard is God's people. The workers are pastors, teachers, etc. What will happen to those workers of the vineyard, those leaders of the church who do not honor God's name and do not offer to God the fruit that is due to his name. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, one of the things that we are praying for is that God's name may be especially hallowed and kept holy in the mouth and in the lives of those whom God has sent to us as leaders in the church. Pastors, teachers, Sunday school teachers, elders, etc. Anyone whose job it is to serve God's word. For those of us who are in such a position, we are praying that God would forgive our many failures 
and help us to be faithful in our labors in the days to come. For those of us who have not been called as leaders of the church, we are earnestly praying that God would hallow his name in the mouth of our leaders, and even we are praying that God would remove from positions of leadership those who are not faithful to him, as he does in this parable. This last week in Bible history, we were discussing uh, with the kids the story of the prophet Samuel. And you may remember how before Samuel became the prophet of Israel, Eli and his sons were the priests. However, Eli's sons dishonored God's name by stealing the sacrifices that the people were bringing to the temple and keeping it for themselves instead of offering those sacrifices to God. And also by even seducing the women who came to the temple to worship God. So great was their offense and their dishonor of God's name that the people stopped coming to worship at the temple and God himself stopped speaking to the people. We're told that when Samuel was young, God records in his word that the word of God was rare in those days. God did not speak to his people because those who should have been preaching and proclaiming God's name and leading the people to God were instead a cause of offense, leading the people away from God. Samuel himself served God faithfully for many years, but then his sons once again dishonored God's name by taking bribes instead of being fair in their judgment. Years later, during the time of Jeremiah, we hear about prophets, supposed prophets of the Lord who were telling the people of Israel, it's okay, it doesn't matter, God, sir, God loves you, God will forgive you, you don't have to worry about the Assyrians. Even though God had made it clear through prophet Jeremiah that he was bringing the Assyrians down as punishment upon Israel for their rebellion. In both cases, we have examples of men who should have been honoring God, the Lord, the name of the Lord, with their mouth and with their lives, and yet were leading the people astray. Sometimes <clears throat> through false teaching, and sometimes through sinful living, which is an offense, and sometimes both. This is what happens when God's name is not kept holy by pastors, teachers, elders, etc., Sometimes they dishonor it with this sinful life and sometimes with sinful teaching contrary to God's name. But in either case, the vineyard suffers greatly. And yet this happens so easily, doesn't it? That the leaders of the church are led astray. Because Satan knows very well that if he can lead the leaders astray, if he can get at the leaders of the church that he can quite easily devour the sheep. And so we pray fervently, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, that God would protect and guard and keep our pastors and teachers from temptation, that he would provide us with faithful leaders, and that, if it is necessary, he would remove those who are unfaithful to him, so that we might have pastors like Samuel, and not leaders like Phineas and Hophni of the sons of Eli, who did such great wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. 
We continue with verses 11 to 13. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. This parable has quite a bit in common with the parable that we heard last week, the parable of the prodigal son, or we could call it the parable of the lost son, or some people like to call it the parable of the extravagant father because of all the extravagant grace that he lavishes upon his son. But the point is this parable has quite a bit in common uh, with that parable. In that parable, we saw how that father lavished his love and his mercy and his grace upon his son to an absurd degree, or at least what we would call an absurd degree. Even continuing to show his younger son love and mercy and grace when the son asked for his inheritance, when he sold that inheritance, when he went into sinful living, even welcoming him back in joy and forgiveness. In the parable before us, the owner of the vineyard, representing God once again, lavishes, so in the same way, lavishes his grace and mercy upon these workers, doesn't he? In fact, one could argue that the man in this parable, the owner of the vineyard, is more loving and shows more mercy and grace to these, these workers in the vineyard even than that father did to that lost son. It it would be reasonable for that owner to remove these workers after the first time that they beat his servant and sent him away empty-handed. And yet in his grace and mercy, the owner sends another and a third and then even sends his own son. And just like uh, the parable last week, just like the sons in that parable take advantage of God's mercy, of God's love, of their Father's love and mercy. So also the workers in the vineyard here in this parable take advantage of God's mercy and grace. So great is God's love for us that he continues to send his prophets to us, his word to us, even when we take advantage of his love. In the book of Exodus, the Lord told told Moses... Exodus 34, 5 to 6. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So great is God's mercy and love for us that God says this is an integral part of his name. When God shows his face, sets his face to go before Moses and proclaims his name, he proclaims it as the Lord God who is merciful and long-suffering and patient. So great is God's love that he even allows us to take advantage of that mercy and grace as the sons did last week and as the workers in the vineyard do this week. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying that God would teach us to appreciate that name of love and mercy and grace and not to be like the workers in the vineyard, 
taking advantage of it for our own sinful purposes. Unfortunately, not just some, but many people think that the gospel means that I can do whatever I want, that I can continue in sin day after day, and it doesn't matter, I'll just ask God for forgiveness tomorrow. Note the progression in the parable before us. At first, the vine dressers only beat the servant and send him away. But then they beat him and treat him shamefully. And then the third, they beat him and cast him out, and finally, they even kill the son. At first, there seems to be at least some holding back, some shame of their sinfulness. But when the master does not return and remove them because of their sinfulness, they grow bolder and bolder in the sin, taking more and more advantage of God's love and of his grace. God's name is mercy. His name is grace. His grace is so great that we can take advantage of it, that we can continue in sin and return the next day and ask for forgiveness, and God does continue day after day to forgive us. But we pray in this petition that we would not be like that, that we would not be like these men in this parable, but that God would turn our hearts so that instead of seeing God's love and mercy as something that we can take advantage of for our own sinfulness, we learn to treasure and love that grace and mercy. As the son did last week, finally, took him a little while, but finally he learned to embrace and rejoice in that and appreciate that love of his father rather than seeing it as something he could take advantage of. We pray that we would learn this not because we are afraid of God's wrath, although we ought to be, but because we love his love. We do not like, want to be like the men of this parable, but rather we would like to be like that prodigal son, embracing God's love for us and rejoicing in his mercy. We pray, hallowed be thy name, asking that God may teach us to treasure his love for us. We continue with the, the, <clears throat> the rest of the, the reading Verses 14 to 20. But when the vine dressers saw him, that is the son, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they had heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Before I mentioned that God's mercy is so great that we can 
take advantage of it, as we talked about in the children's sermon, we can take advantage of God's love, lean into sin so far up to a point. But what is that point up to which we are able to go, up to which we are able to stretch God's love and forgiveness? How far does God's love extend? Jesus himself answers that question after this parable when he says to us, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The answer Jesus gives us is that God's love extends so far up to and including even sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. As ridiculous as it sounds, the master in the parable, after they refuse to listen and even beat up three of his servants, goes even further, even to sending his own son. This parable does have a lot, as we mentioned, in common with the parable from last Sunday, as we've already pointed out. However, the tone of the parable is very different. And you can almost feel that difference in tone almost from right at the beginning. The tone of the parable of the prodigal son is one of loss and redemption through Jesus Christ. But the tone of this parable is one of judgment upon sinners. What is the difference? What makes that one one of lost and redemption, whereas this one is one of God's coming judgment? And as we've seen, the answer is Jesus himself. We saw in the parable last Sunday how that prodigal son fell and was broken, but ultimately he fell on Jesus. And although he was broken by that law, by the recognition of his own sin, he was also healed by his Father's love, by God's, by Jesus' forgiveness. In the parable today, however, these men refuse to be broken by God's law. They refuse to repent, and therefore, instead of falling on Jesus, Jesus' wrath and condemnation falls on them. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Those who fall on Jesus are broken by his law. The Apostle Peter is such an example, one who was broken by the recognition of his own sin, but was healed. The Apostle Paul we see how on the road to Damascus he was broken when confronted with God's law, but was healed by Jesus' forgiveness. King David, Jeremiah, Jonah, Job, and so many more. We see in their lives, Abraham, how they are broken by God's law, but are healed by Christ's forgiveness. Those who would fall on Jesus must be confronted by that law and realize their sin and be broken so that they repent of their sins. But those who will not bend before God's law, those who will not be broken by God's law, upon them Jesus falls and crushes them. There is no forgiveness outside of Christ. Jesus tells us that he is a rock of offense 
and a stumbling stone. His law breaks us with the knowledge of sin, but it also heals us with that love and that forgiveness. These men refuse to be broken. They will not confess their sins, and so they are crushed instead. Ultimately for us, the name of God is the name of Jesus, isn't it? It is through Jesus that we know God. It is through Jesus that we are brought to God. We remember the vision of Jacob and that stairway to heaven, and that stairway is Jesus. The name of Jesus is our path to God. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying that we may keep Jesus' name holy. That as we talked about before, we may treasure and cling to that name of Jesus. That we would fall upon it, even if it means that our hearts are broken by the knowledge of our sin, that we may be healed and strengthened by his love. Let us pray. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, teach us so to love thy name that we may always treasure your grace through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.